Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom, and you're listening to On the Sporting Couch. I'm a sports broadcaster, counsellor, and psychotherapist, and that means I work one to one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day to day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy. It doesn't mean the individual is ill or sick. It just means that they feel the need to discuss the things that are going on in their lives because they're going through a tough time. One in four of us will experience strong feelings that can overwhelm us at some stage in our lives. My training allows me to work with people who are experiencing mood disorders like anxiety, depression, performance anxiety, relationship and work issues and addictive behaviours. I'm undertaking this project to help widen the understanding of mental well-being in sport and beyond. Nearly everyone listening will know of someone who's been in this position at some stage, and hopefully this programme will give a greater understanding of what goes on between therapist and the person who today is on the sporting couch. Meet Nigel Owens, one of the world's best rugby union referees. Growing up in Wales, he first picked up a whistle at the age of 16, has gone on to referee the Rugby World Cup final and two consecutive Heineken Cup finals. After making his international debut in 2007, he's now at the very peak of his profession. Nigel is also the first openly gay man to referee at the highest level. He came out in 2007 and has spoken candidly about his struggle to come to terms with his sexuality, leading to bulimia, depression and attempting suicide. So in the next hour, I hope you'll hear what I think is a really brave admission by a leading referee that the life they were leading as a professional sportsman wasn't all it looked like from the outside. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom and Nigel Owens, who once said that accepting who I am saved my life. I've got to admit I'm slightly jealous of you and I'll tell you why I'm a bit jealous of you. Is because what you have described in your book uh, and subsequently is of a very, very warm family background. A fantastic family, really strong characters, mum and dad, and grandparents too. And I'd like you just to give me a flavour of that, of what it was like growing up very, very early on in your life, having that warmth and that support. 
I think the most important thing in life, I think, is family. That, that is the most important thing. You know, we all health and a lot of other things as well. And, you know, obviously, if, if you've got money that you can sort of live comfortably on, then you can make things easier and a bit more enjoyable. But, but even if you haven't got health, you need a family around to support you when you're not healthy. So if you haven't got family, then, then I would... I can't imagine life without the family. So to me, family is the most important thing. Um, and I was brought up. Um, my dad was one of seven, although um, one of the brothers died when he was about seven or eight years old. Um, and then my mum was one of six. So when I was growing up as a kid, I had a lot of cousins, a lot of uncle and aunties. And my grandparents and my mother's side had passed away. Um, I'd never met them. I, I think... Um, my grandfather died in a car crash when my mum was about 13, 12, 13, I think. Wow. And then my grandmother then died the sort of year I was born. So I never met mm. her or remember her. So my mum's upbringing was very different to my dad's because she lost her parents very young. Um, but then on my dad's side, my grandmother and grandfather, um, you know, my grandmother was alive till I was about 21 and my grandfather died in when, he's a, when I was about 12, 13. And because he was still alive, you know, when you used to go down there on the weekend or stay there or go down on Sunday sometimes or whenever you'd go there, all the other part of the family, you know, the other uncle and aunties and cousins and grandchildren would be there as well. So it was where everybody sort of went to. And then when they passed away then, that sort of hub, if you like, where, you know, the family attracted to to see their parents was actually gone. But because we were close family, we still kept in touch, but maybe not as often then. So... So the upbringing was, you know, was I couldn't have asked for a better upbringing, really. Because um, you almost lost your paternal grandfather very, very early on. You were a babe in arms, and he had a stroke, didn't he? Yeah, he had a stroke, um, I think, just before I was born. Mm. And he was in hospital, and my my grandmother and, you know, my dad and, and the family, they were called down, I think, about two or three times during a period of... A, couple of weeks or a couple of days whatever it was to say like you know he's, he's probably not going to make it through the night um but he, he made it through the night and then I was born then um sort of whilst he was in hospital so I was taken then as a baby you know to him um and he wasn't really that conscious really um so and, and I obviously don't ask. So I'm you're talking. I was a day old. You know, you were in hospital for a couple of days. You weren't sort of born, and then you left the hospital a couple of hours later. You were in for a couple of days. So I was taken to him now, so that I could be in his arms because he wasn't going to come out of there. Really, they were expecting him to die any any minute, any hour, or any day. And um, f- held in his arms, um, then you know, then and then obviously. I was taken away, and then the following day we left hospital or whatever, and uh, and then he improved. He sort of pulled through it. Now, you know, it, it may well be a total, total coincidence, but it certainly makes you think, you know, and uh, he, he pulled through it. He, he came home, uh, and he worked hard, and uh, he still has to walk with a stick, um, you know, but could still walk comfortably and just enjoy a pint or two, and his speech and everything was fine, and he did, you know, he worked hard for his recovery, but he did recover, and he enjoyed then... Very good health, really, for the for the next part of thirteen years, and he and he died then. He had another stroke, and then he passed away when I was about thirteen. And um, I went to a funeral when I was about ten years old. The Sunday school teacher she had passed away, and it was the first ever funeral I went to, and um, I cor- I cried quite emotional, um, and I 
cried quite badly in the funeral. A couple of our, my friends went because the Sunday school teacher. And so then I think my mum and, and decided then, like, you know, it's not the place for you to go because I was, you know, crying and stuff. So when my granddad got buried, I decided, because with my 13 years of age, that I wasn't going to go to the funeral. And, and I didn't go. And that's one of my biggest regrets. When I was brought up, there was a farm just behind where I was living in Tirgarn. And um, I used to go up there to help on the farm and stuff when I was a kid and everything. And pretty much every weekend, really. And I went up there to stay then for about four, four or five days whilst, you know, all this was going on. And um, I think I was asked, do you want to go to the funeral by my mum? And I said, no, I, I don't want to go. Because obviously I had a bad memory of about crying and crying all the time in the, sure. in the only funeral I'd been to. And uh, I remember ringing my mum up. I was so angry with her at the time. I, I rang her up. They were actually in my grandmother's house now, waiting for the preacher to come to the house, and then they would go to the chapel. And I remember ringing up, crying on the phone, and said I wanted to come to the funeral. But obviously it was it was impossible then for me to, to get there because, you know, with everything, the proceedings were starting. And I, when I put the phone on, I was so annoyed that she didn't let me go. But obviously you know, there were no option. And... Um, and I and I regretted that ever since that I didn't go to my grandfather's funeral. You know, I went to my grandmother's funeral, and and unfortunately I have had to go to my mum's funeral then nine nine years ago as well now. So um, I do regret not going to the funeral, but but thankfully he had you know thirteen pretty healthy years really when. He, in all expectancy, he wasn't going to have them. So, um, and a special bond between you, it's, it strikes me, because of, of what happened. Yeah, I'm very close to. I was very close to my grandparents. Um, I'm very close to to my mum and dad, and, and and you know, and other people in the family as well. So, because I think family is so important to me, you you do get that bond of closeness. You know, mm. I haven't got any um, brothers or sisters. Um, so, I suppose all my cousins, which a lot of them are my age. I'm like my brothers and sisters, and then they've got kids, ranging now from the age of, um, ranging from the age of, you know, one and a half, two years old, till the oldest is what, twenty one, twenty two now, and they suppose they're always over my house. I take them out for food once or twice a week, and and they come to the rugby with me. And uh, one of my little cousins now, who's who's thirteen, not so little anymore, he'll be coming with me on on Saturday uh, to the game. I'll be refereeing, and and um, so. Family is very important to me, and I suppose those kids now who are my cousins sort of you know is a special bond there because I haven't got kids of my own. I sort of treat them in a way like like they are my own. You know, it's it's, it's nice when they go home, mind when they've been overstaying for a couple of days and then they're going home, and you can just sort of chill out on the on the sofa and don't have to worry about doing anything else. Yeah. But um, no, I love having them them over. So yeah, f- to me, family is the most important thing, and it was a huge part of my upbringing and a huge influence in my upbringing as well. When you self-reflect, how important uh, in terms of being Nigel Owens is the fact that you are a, an only child? You didn't have brothers and sisters. Um, I think that would have been very relevant question if I hadn't had so many cousins and you know, no younger second cousins and stuff mm. like that because... It's still like they, you know, they're your kids in one way, but but they're not. So if I hadn't had any cousins and stuff, then what well, I would have been very sort of lonely. I I so guess they were your brothers and sisters. Yeah, so they were in 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 one sense, although they were not. So um, um, and I think you, it's probably put me in good stead as well in one sense because as a referee, you spend a lot of time on your own. You know, I spend a lot of time away from home. Um, I've been away the last eight weekends. Um, 
But I mean, most of the time he's on your own when you mm. travel away to sort of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. You're there for three or four weeks. A lot of the time you're on your own, especially when you're in your room in the night and stuff. You're on your own. Um, Do you like your own company? And, and I, I don't mind it. Um, I like but, company, but probably because I was brought up as an only child. Well, I was an only child. Um, I was used to then having my own time and having my own company as well. So now. It doesn't bother me having my own time and own company when I'm away. And, but and I, that's actually, probably I'm sorry way. to jump in, Nigel, but I'm going to, I don't mind stressing this point. I said, do you like your own company? And what you answered me is, I don't mind my own company. There's a subtle difference between the two. Um, I suppose, yeah, I, I do like, you know, the odd couple of hours where you just want to switch off and just do nothing. Just sit there yourself and read a book or listen to the music or just grab an afternoon or an evening in the house on your own and just do what you want and watch whatever program you want. So, yeah, I do I do like my own company, but also I'm equally as at home in the company of others as well. So I suppose I'm very lucky in one sense that I have the best of, of both worlds, really, I guess. Growing up, Nigel, one of the earliest problems you came across, and I'm noticing you have a wristband on saying bulliesout.com, is you encountered bullying. What was that like? Hell, not what it was like. Not that I've been to hell or know what actually hell is like, but when you hear people speaking about what hell, then that is hell. Um, it was very, very difficult time of my life, and there's no doubt it affected my, my life in in that period of six, seven months. It affected my education. Who bullied you? Um, it was a, a, a guy who was in the same age as me in, in school. Um, not in the same class as me, but in the same year as me in school. And um, I don't know why. There was no apparent reason um i haven't asked him since i haven't seen him for many many years um i've seen him since i left school and stuff and you know chatted and said hello and stuff and and i don't own any begrudges to him in in one sense because it's it's not very nice when you're being bullied there, there is no doubt about that but i also i think as well that sometimes as a young person growing up there could be a reason behind why you were bullying somebody. You could be bullied yourself and you seem to take it out on somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, so there are various different re reasons. I think sometimes if somebody's feeling a bit insecure or or are dealing with issues in their own personal life, that they sort of take it out and, and that's a form. So, so, you know, a lot of... If you think back of a lot of things we said and done as kids, you wouldn't dream about doing it now, would you? So... You know, I, I accept and realise that as well. And that doesn't make bullying right. And I think it's education, I think, plays a huge part, I think, in in the prevention of bullying and dealing with, with bullying, I think. Welcome to On The Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and rugby referee, Nigel Owens. The bus used to pick me up and I would get to the school... Uh, the Gwendroth Grammar School, if it was at the time, I used to get there around sort of 8.25, 8.30, a bit earlier than that. I used to get there about 8.15 a.m., so 45 minutes before school started. And then the guy who was actually bullying me used to get there around the same time. So there weren't many kids in school because it was just starting to arrive. So a lot of my, sort of my friends and my cousins and stuff were older were then arriving a bit later. So then when they arrived, I would be safer and I'd spend time with them and the, and the bully wouldn't have an opportunity to bully me. So I used to then hide on the back of the bus, not get off the bus, oh. because the bus that dropped me off would then go back and pick up another route. And when, when one of my best friends then would be on that route. 
And I remember hiding down then in the seat in the bus, not getting off the bus, and then the bus would start picking other people up, and then I'd just sit up in the bus then, and my mate would come on the bus, and I'd go into school then about five, ten minutes before the bell went then, and you'd feel much safer. And I remember the driver actually pulling off and must have seen me in the back of the bus and told me, you know, you've got to get off the bus, you can't stay on the bus. And I I didn't tell him um, that I was staying on the bus because I was being bullied, you know, and I'm, perhaps I should have because maybe then he would have said to somebody in school or he maybe would have allowed me to stay on the bus that day. But I had to go off the bus that, that day and get into school and I was bullied that morning then in, in school and I remember feeling... a very angry at the driver for making me go off off the bus. So, do, you remember, um, do you remember the sort of things you were being bullied about? Yeah, just just pushed about and stuff like that and just called names and, you know, punched in sort of, you know, just punched in the stomach or punched in the side of your arm, just as a one-off, not sort of continuously beating you up. Mm. And just, just little things like that, really, and making fun of you and and pushing you and, you know, telling you then, oh, I, I don't want you to be friends with me, don't... don't come with me and my friends and some of my friends were sort of in that group as well and because you don't tell anybody then you know when you when you're getting bullied it's you feel it's your own fault it's mm. a sense of embarrassment a sense of shameness a, a sense of weakness but but you know actually to to stand up and not that you have to stand up to the bully himself but to stand up and tell somebody about it that is a sign of of great strength you know not a sign of weakness that shows more strength in you as a person than the actual bully himself the weakness is with the guy or the girl who's who's bullying you i know if i would have stood up and you know said something then the bullying would have probably finished a long time before it did so what effect did the bullying have going forward nigel on your life growing up how did it affect you it affected me in the period I was being bullied that I didn't go to school, so it affected my education. It made me felt worthless, I guess. Uh, somebody weak um, affected my confidence in, in that period of time. But then as time goes by and you get a little bit older and you get a bit more confidence, and I got that then by you know the bullying stopping and playing rugby with your mates and doing some drama in school mm-hmm. and performing on the stage and, and everything like that, and then that builds the confidence back in you then. But it also then, I suppose, um, put me in a situation where then I can I can look back at those years or months of being bullied and prevent it from happening to me again because if it does if it did happen to me again after that then I would know what to do about it and I was to speak up about it and it also then sort of makes me realize as a person to be a bit more considered around around people as well because sometimes people say things and you won't mean anything nasty by it you're not you know deliberately saying something to make somebody feel small or bully somebody but by saying things without thinking what you're saying, it could be hurting somebody. So it, it certainly made me a person who's more conscious of what I say and how I say it and, and and what I do. So to make sure that I don't sort of, you know, hurt anybody sort of unexpectedly as well. And so I would think as well that that experience has probably made me in... It doesn't make me into a harder person. You know, I couldn't check a punch at, at anybody or stand up for myself in a fight. But I think it's made me a stronger person within myself in in a much better way, you know, that I don't have to sort of put my fist into somebody to stand up to somebody. I can stand up to them in a different way. But interestingly, you don't take any nonsense on a rugby pitch, do you? And I just wonder 
at times when whether there's a relationship between the little boy who was bullied and a very powerful character who then goes on to the rugby pitch and officiates so well. There could there could well be. Um, you hear a lot of you know people having goals at referees sometimes and saying, oh, you know, he, he, the referee we are on Saturday. He was you know speaking down to everybody and shouting and everybody and pointing the finger. You know, he must have been bullied at school and I was trying to bully the players. And then I think to myself, well, I was actually bullied at school, but I don't like to think that I speak down to players or point the fingers at players, you know, but I'd like to think that I communicate firmly when needed to be and, and fairly. Um, so there probably is, you know, it's made me into a stronger mm. person, I guess, that experience is, and probably that has helped me then in the way that I sort of conduct myself with confidence I suppose and uh, and deal with situations on the field and, and to to be firm in a in a very very physical game of rugby that requires you to be firm but more importantly fair but you're you, you become famous for your witty one-liners and they've they're great and um there's plenty of them. Not everybody would agree with well, you. Well, that, that was my next question. You've, 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 you've guessed my next question. Not, it doesn't go down well with everybody, does it? It doesn't go down well with a very few minority. Does it um, bother you? It doesn't bother me, but it annoys me because, and I tell you why it annoys me. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, um, and and we must never forget that. Um, and you know, not everybody is my cup of tea, and I wouldn't expect me to be everybody else's cup of tea. But what does annoy me about, not just the instance with, with myself, but with other people as well, is people judge people. People say things about people. Oh, he's only saying that because he wants to make the headlines. He's, you know, he's rehearsing these lines. They sound rehearsed on the field. Are they? No, they're not. Not once have I ever gone into a game thinking, oh, I'll say this today, or I'll practice this now, and if the opportunity arises, I'll say this. I have never, ever crossed my mind in doing that. All I'm doing is being myself. So what annoys me is not the fact that they don't like my style of refereeing. That, that's fine. But what annoys me is when they point the finger at somebody, and in me in particular, saying, are oh, you doing that to get the headlines? No, I'm not. I am just saying it as it is. So it does annoy me, not that people don't like my style, but when people accuse you of being somebody that you're not, I go to, I tried being somebody I wasn't for a large part of my life, and that nearly ended up in me losing my life. Since then, I've I've said there's no way I'm going to try to be somebody I'm not, and I just go out on that field now to, to just to be myself, and and I can rest, I can. People can rest assured that I don't rehearse anything, and I certainly do go out there to have a joke at the expense of anybody or to be disrespectful to anybody. I'd like to visit some dark days for you in the past, and you talked about living a lie, um, about your sexuality. What is your biggest regret now about looking back at that period, about living a lie? Who do you feel you let down? A lot of people would tell you that life is what you make it. Mm -hmm. I'm a strong believer. Um, now, there are exceptions to the norm, of course there are. There's exceptions to the norm in everything in life. But I'm a strong believer that life makes you. So the way you're brought up by your mum and dad or guardians or grandparents, whoever brings you up, taught by them what is right and wrong, um, the community you're brought up within, the school you go to, the influence that people in the school, your friends, teachers, the rugby coach, the football coach, influence people around you. All this whilst you're growing up has a huge influence on, on who you become. Uh, and I think by the end of your late teens, early 20s, you will probably come 
the person you're going to be for the rest of your of your life. And I was brought up by my mum and dad um, to to be honest, to be polite, to be respectful, um, not to lie, not to steal, everything that you know that is wrong. You shouldn't be doing them in one sense. So that's the way I was brought up. And, and one, to be honest, was the biggest, um, one of the biggest mm. things. So here I was now at, at 19, 20 years of age, um, lying to myself, becoming somebody I didn't want to be, pretending I wasn't, lying to, to the people that mattered more to me than anything in life, my my mum and dad and family and friends. And actually the girl I was going out with for about a year and a half, I was actually, you know, lying to her as well in in an extent um because i was pretending to be somebody i i wasn't you know we were making plans for together for the future where from time to time deep down i was having moments where i was thinking well this is not going to happen and then you know you you'd get over that and this and you said right i'm, I'm no i'm not going to be like that and then you'd commit yourself deeper into this and you know then for weeks and weeks went by and you'd forgotten about the person, the other person inside you, but then you'd come back again, so there's no getting away from it. Yeah. So when I was 19, 20 years of age, I was quite overweight, I was quite obese, I was about 16 and a half stone, um, fighting against my sexuality, becoming somebody I didn't want to be, becoming somebody I didn't know nothing about. I couldn't relate to anybody. I'd never met a gay person. I'd never, I'd never seen a gay person. The only gay person that I had seen or relate to were some of the very camp characters that were some on some of the sitcoms back in the sort of late eighties, then early nineties on television. And and I'm thinking to myself, I can't be gay because I'm not like that. And there was nothing wrong with those people, but no. I, I'm not like that. And um, I then became bulimic because I wanted to lose weight. I, I thought, you know, my, my my urge to sort of try and experience something with somebody of the same sex and were not finding me attractive, I guess. The type of person that I was finding attractive was not finding me attractive because I thought I was overweight and everything. So I made myself ill. I pretty much after every meal, I'd go to the toilet and stick my fingers down my throat and I make myself uh, sick. And um, that went on for, for years and years and years. Um, still raises his head from time to time even today really you know but very very rarely thankfully and then um i then went started going to the gym because i wanted to put more weight on to be a bit more muscular to see if people would find me attractive and um and then i got hooked on steroids and then between being uh, in a very very dark place with mental health issues about my sexuality and about who i was fighting against it lying to my mum and dad and people and knowing that i what i was doing was wrong in lying um suffering from bulimia um and um hooked on steroids and um you know it it led to to a time in my life where i thought right there's only there's only one way out of this now i'd read somewhere that um uh i you could, could chemically castrate it and it would take the sexual urges away from you and i thought that me becoming gay or being gay uh, was a sexual urge so I thought if I get rid of the sexual urge then I then I won't be gay anymore so I went to the doctor and you know we had the conversation with the doctor which um which quite rightly and quite clearly said no look it doesn't work like that you know you can't do that and um so I left the doctor in probably worse state than when I went in there because the only avenue I thought I had out was gone 
and then obviously then over the next couple of months the, the thoughts came into my mind and I slipped further and further into sort of darkness and um, I thought right you know there is only one way out now then um, and that is to is to take my own life is to end it all um, and I did something one night that that I will regret for the rest of my life something that I have to I have to live with this for the rest of my life, you know, knowing what I did that night, you know, leaving that note to my mum and dad, thinking the hell I must have put them through when they got up in the morning and read a piece of paper that their only son they weren't going to see again. And um, I'll never, ever forgive myself for that. And um, they've forgiven me, uh, thankfully, but um, I won't forgive myself. You know, I've, I've got to live with that for the rest of my life. And um, And I left the house and... And luckily, in one sense, what I actually took to take my own life actually saved me because I'd left with a couple of bottles of paracetamols and a bottle of whiskey and um, and a loaded shotgun because I was to work on a farm. I had a shotgun in the house. And um, there is no doubt if I hadn't slipped into that coma uh, and become unconscious, um, I would have pulled the trigger. And I got airlifted to, to hospital and I spent a couple of days in intensive care. And when I came round, the, the doctor said, look... You're a very lucky young man. Another twenty minutes and been too late to save you. And uh, and then the following day, uh, after a couple of days in hospital, something happened that that changed my life forever. Something that, when I look back at it now, something that has saved my life. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to On The Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and rugby referee, Nigel Owens. There is no doubt if I hadn't slipped into that coma uh, and become unconscious, um, I would have pulled the trigger. And I got airlifted to, to hospital and I spent a couple of days in intensive care. And when I came round, the, the doctor said, look, you're a very lucky young man. Another 20 minutes and been too late to save you. And, uh, and then the following day, uh, after a couple of days in hospital, something happened that, that changed my life forever. Something that, 
when I look back at it now, something that has saved my life. Everybody left one night. Uh, my mum and dad were the last to leave with my uncle and auntie, and my mum came back about five minutes later, and um, she said, um, I don't know why you've done it, um, and I hope in your own time that you'll tell me, and I didn't tell her for, for years later. Um, but she said, if you do anything like that again, then then you take me and your dad with you, because... We don't want to live our lives with without you. You know, we you're you're our only son, and we love you, and we don't want to live without you. So you do anything like that again, and you may as well take me and your dad with you. And my mum left, and um, I cried like a baby for for hours. Um, and then, um, gathering your thoughts and thinking everything through, you know, my my mind was a total mess then, and I I thought to myself and realised to myself, look. This is who I am. Um, I need to accept who I am, and I need to to grow up and get on with my life. And my mum coming back and telling me that probably saved my life. Um, and then the biggest, the biggest challenge I think that anybody comes across in their life, the biggest challenge I came across in my life was was accepting my sexuality, accepting who I was. Um, and I think that is the biggest challenge anybody comes across in their life, whether it's accepting you have uh, a job problem, relationship problems as a kid in school, accepting you have a problem with the exams, worries about whatever they are. If you're being bullied, accept it. You are being bullied and you do something about it. Because it's only when you accept that there is something that is affecting your life in whatever way it is and whatever it is, or however trivial it is or however big it is, um, it's only when you accept there is something wrong that you can then do something about it. And and I accepted that night that I now needed to accept my sexuality and, and then move on to the next challenge over the years, which was, what am I going to do about it? Um, but that, there is no doubt that that, that night in hospital when my mum came back, um, you know, I I didn't really get a chance to, to tell her this because she she passed away then about nine years ago from, from cancer and um, we spent a sort of lot of time with each other during that year because we knew she was going to die within that year and you know the doctors told her that a year it was she was expected to live a year and a year it was so but I wish I had um, had had told her that you know that what she told me that night actually sort of saved me my life and, and helped me become who I am today I guess If she could listen to this interview what would you like to say to her Nigel? I would like to tell her that, um, first of all, that I was sorry for what I put her and my dad through um, that night, and probably what I put them through as well in in probably years to come as well, because they must have been worried if I've done this once, am I going to do it again? Because I didn't tell them why until I actually told my mum that I was gay, you know, um, about nine years after that event. It stopped you? Um because I didn't know how they would react. I didn't know how my family and friends... I didn't know if I could carry on refereeing because there was nobody out in, 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 in rugby, in a sport. And, um, and when I look back at this now, this is a, such a stupid thing. Um, because only about 18 months ago, I had a, a message um, from a young kid who was about 16, 17 years of age. Um, he'd got hold of my phone number from... 
a friend of his who was in school with a cousin of mine and I had a text asking if um, I could meet up because he was dealing with his sexuality and was going through what I'd gone through. So I rung him and I said, and yes, I said I'd meet up. And, and this kid had just been chucked out of his home. This is only 18 months ago by his mum and dad because he was gay. And I don't know his mum and dad well. I know of them. I know that they go to church every Sunday. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, these these parents go to church every Sunday, supposed to be Christians or whatever religion they are. And here they are. I've, I've chucked their son out on the street. He was living with his auntie, I think, or great-auntie. Um, and then I realised that's what I was thinking. In that period after accepting who I was, there was still that worry is my mum and dad going to speak to me again? You know, are they going to disown? I was still living at home. You know, I lived at home till I was 34 years of age. Are they, are they going to check me out? And I was actually going through that now. Obviously, no, with my mum and dad, they would have never done that. But it was a worry at the time. And it's unbelievable to think that today parents disown or don't speak to their children because of their sexuality, because they are different. And, and that is part of the reason why I didn't tell my mum and dad. But... I knew now that obviously of course I could have told my mum and dad and they would have embraced me with, with open arms and told me that that they loved me no matter what. I'm just wondering the effect of the church on this because the church's relationship with, with homosexuality is, is a difficult one and do you think that was at the root of this that as good God-fearing people it was just too big a gap to, 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 to bridge? It, 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 could well, it could well be but... You know, I'm I'm friends with a good friends with a lot of people. Some who are, are preachers, or um, I don't know the English word for a deacon. I think a deacon is in Welsh. I think it's a deacon in chapels, and um, you know, a lot of people who, who are very very religious. People who don't drink because of the religious beliefs, and people who don't gamble. I'm not a gambler myself anyway, but a lot of people who take the religious beliefs very seriously. I mean, they don't treat me any different. I'd be welcome to go to the chapel. There's probably one or two in the chapel who may may not like the fact, but on the whole. So, yes, it is difficult to, to understand that there are people like that, but there there is no doubt there there are, because um, look, I, I, I do believe in God. When I think back to that moment with my grandfather, there, there must be something, you know. I do believe in God. I don't go to chapel anymore. And that's not because I don't believe anymore. It's because... I haven't got time, but I suppose if I really wanted to, I'd make time, and that's something maybe I, I will do, because I do believe. I don't believe in everything that's written in the Bible, because, you know, I think as years have gone by, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago, people have written down what they believe at that time, and then the next generation have changed it to what they believe. So I think... Although the spine of the Bible is still there, I think there's a lot of things added to it that I don't think Jesus would have believed in that. You know, I think there was a great and good man like Jesus Christ um, that did a lot of wonderful things. There's a lot of things added. I think there was a Jesus Christ, a good man who believed in, in the good in people. And, and I don't think a person like Jesus Christ would have wanted people to be treated different because of the colour of their skin, their religious beliefs, or their sexual orientation. Um, and a lot of people in chapel and in churches also 
believe in that way as well that Jesus Christ would have believed in in, in that although there are the minority who who don't for whatever reason and you tend to find and and I'm not saying that this is the case in every case but I've found from my own experiences when I was 19, 20 years of age you wouldn't hear me saying anything nice about a gay person you I wouldn't hear no them. because well, what were you saying about them well I, if if anybody told me oh I, I think he's gay then I would have said oh bloody puff you know, the one I'm sitting by us because deep down I was fighting against that myself I mean you shocked me here yeah, but, but, I'm shocked to hear that but this, uh, this, and you find this. I found and experienced this a lot since then, where a lot of people who bullied people in school because they were gay, or in their minds they looked gay, or didn't like people because of their sexuality, actually have turned out to be gay or bisexual themselves. And I don't know what it is, but there is that sense inside you that. I don't want because I was fighting against my sexuality so I was doing and not it wasn't because I didn't like those gay people I was probably doing it because I didn't want my friends to think if they thought oh Nigel doesn't like gay people so there's no way he can be gay I was trying everything to hide my sexuality so so a tough question coming up how what do you feel now you need to respect people for whatever their beliefs are what the way that they look or dress or they want to be, their, their, sec- their sexual orientation, their beliefs. So that's who they want to be. And I and I think that's important, you know, because um, if that's who they want to be, then people need to respect that. And I'm, I'm more than comfortable with, with yeah. that. I wouldn't treat anybody any different in that way. But there is no doubt that growing up, um, I would have done everything to try and distance myself from people who were gay or bisexual or cross-dressing or transgender or whatever to distance myself from them not because I didn't like them but because I didn't want people to find out that I was gay but you were essentially distancing yourself from yourself and that's yes that I, that's what I was doing and, and I remember working I used to work in youth clubs yeah. and I remember and kids still do it now um and they don't do it in any sort of nasty way because a lot of the kids I know very well. I've seen my even cousins have sometimes says, "Oh, I'm not going to school tomorrow. That's gay." And and I look at him and thinking he he doesn't he doesn't mean you know he stays down my house or he'll sleep over sometimes and stuff. So he doesn't mean anything nasty and he's not homophobic in in any way. But he he says this without thinking. And I remember working in a youth club and I remember. We were playing cards in the youth club about me and myself and five or six of the other boys and a couple of girls and we were playing a game of spoons, a card game. Mm-hmm. And after playing spoons for a while, there was about seven or eight of us playing it. Um, I said, right, I said, I'm not playing anymore now. Um, a couple of other people wanted to play. said, I, you play instead of me. I'm going to have a game of table tennis. And there was a couple of boys who were playing. said, you've been playing long enough. Come on, we're going to have a game of table tennis. Let these play. And one of the boys said, oh, I'm not going to play table tennis ask gays ask gay only gays play that my stomach went sick it was churning up if I could have just disappeared I would have because because he, he had no idea that I was gay um, but because he said that I, I I really felt sick and it and because he, did, he didn't mean... I, I, he now lives in my village. We, we, we're good friends. So he's not homophobic in any way, but he just... he just The way that kids say things sometimes without thinking. 
but uh, I, 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 I could have literally gone to the toilet and made myself sick because now I was thinking, oh my God, do they know that I'm gay? And although I didn't, I didn't because I was a bit older now and a bit, you know, maturer and a bit wiser. But probably if that had happened five or six years sooner than that, I'd have probably said, oh yeah, you're right, that is gay, we won't play that. Because I would have done anything for him not to find out that I was, was gay. Welcome to On The Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and rugby referee, Nigel Owens. How did the rugby community react when you came out? Hugely, hugely, positively. Um, I can count on one hand uh, over the years any negativeness I've had from from rugby and from within society itself. And, and yet there was an incident at Twickenham, wasn't there? Yes, and I don't know what was shouted, but whoever was sitting around those people obviously thought that it was not acceptable and they stood up to it. It's not... It's not me or Gareth Thomas or anybody else um, who's out in their different sports um, that makes a difference. Um, it's the people who were in the stadiums, the people who were walking down the, the street and hear things being said that are unacceptable, that turn around and tell these people, hey, that type of behaviour or that type of abuse is not acceptable. Yeah. And when you have people turning around and telling somebody, hey, that's not acceptable here, that is a clear message. Those people tend to think, oh, yeah, you're right, it's not acceptable, or they don't say it anymore. I can't make that difference. The people who don't stand by and let it happen make the difference. And huge credit needs to go to that person and the other people in Twickenham who come forward since and reported that. And huge credit has to go to, to the RFU as well, in dealing with it, to the Welsh Rugby Union in making a uh, coming out and supporting a, a no a bystander campaign in stamping this out, and rugby on the whole has been hugely, hugely, hugely supportive of me. There are there are one or two individuals, not just in rugby, in other sports, and within our societies, a community every day, because there are a minority people who are just bad people. Um, and they will always be. And hopefully, as the time goes by, those minority will get less and less and less. Harder question. How did your parents react when you came out? <laughs> it was very difficult telling my mum, uh, just saying that word, I'm I'm gay. Um, and, you know, even now, I speak in dinner sometimes, and I'm sitting next door to somebody in a dinner, and they say, oh, we've got a wife and kids, then I just married. And, uh, and even now, I say, no, no, I haven't got any wife or kids. But I never tell them, no, I'm gay. I still find it difficult now. I'd, but don't get me wrong. When they ask me something else, then I say, no, I've, I've got a partner. Uh, he comes with me to the rugby sometimes, so I will say it. But I don't say it. If they ask me the question, um, have you got a wife and kids? I don't say, no, I haven't. I'm gay. I say, no, I haven't got any wife or kids. If they ask me something else, then I will say, yeah, I'm gay or no, I've got a partner. But um, telling my mum was very difficult Um I, I cried and sort of a couple of minutes stumbling and saying, Mommy, look, I'm, I'm gay. And um, um, she cried and she hugged me and said, look, it doesn't matter. You know, we, I will love you as my son no matter no matter what. And, and, she and the disappointing it. bit was when she said, um, well, I I did sort of guess. And when I, when I said, well, how did you guess? Um, 
Well, I did find some magazines under your bed years ago. <laughs> and um, <coughs> and I, I let her tell my dad. <laughs> it took her a couple of days. My dad, bless him, he's 81 years of age now. And, mm. and he doesn't know what it's about. Not that he doesn't like gay people. Mm. His love for me has never changed. He's met my partner. Um, my partner will pick him up from bingo sometimes or drop him off and I'm not about. So my dad is absolutely fine with it. But he never talks about it. And I never mention things to him unless he asks because he, he he doesn't really know. I remember my cousins came to my house. Um, we were about, I was about 12, 13. They were about 14, 15, 16. And we'd been on a bike ride. We're back to my house having tea now. There was five of us. And my cousins were a bit wiser than me because they were grown up in a in a school that was a bigger school. I went to primary school with only 15 kids there. So I didn't know much about the world, you know, then. And um, my my cousins were sort of a bit older, a bit wiser, bigger school, um, more people about, knew more about the big wide world than I did. And uh, one of my cousins said to me, hey, ask your dad what a homo is. Uh, as short for homosexual. I didn't know myself at 13 years of age what a homo mm. was. So I just asked my dad. My mum was uh, cooking food. <laughs> my dad was washing his hands there, just coming from something in the garden. I said, Daddy, what, what's a homo? And all my cousins were giggling like this, and I thought it was clever. And my dad turned around to me and he said, um, Oh, I don't know, he said. Ask your mother, I think it's something to do with washing powder. <laughs> because there was washing powder out years ago, apparently, which was called homo. And uh, so, so my dad did have no idea what, what, what it was about. I'd like to ask you another question. In this radio studio here in Swansea, close to your home, how difficult is it for you to say here... Not only am I gay, but I'm very proud of the fact. Does that cause you difficulty? No, not at all. I'm not, not, not one bit. You know, I'm, I'm proud of, of who I am. Um, I'm proud that I, that I am, who I am. You know, that I am gay, and and, and I'm proud of that. Um, so I wouldn't say, oh look, I'm, I'm, I'm proud because I'm gay. I, I am gay, but I'm proud of the person I am. So it doesn't matter whether you're gay, bisexual, transgender, whatever you are, be proud of the person you are, not because of, of the label that people seem to, to put on you. And if there's any young men listening to this show who are terribly, terribly anxious about coming out and being honest to somebody about who they are, what would you say to them? Don't be afraid. Um, the most important thing is that... You are happy within yourself because it's only when you are happy within yourself and you're able to be yourself that life will be worth living. Um, whatever your ambitions are, whether you want to be a rugby player, a, f a football player, a cricketer, a dancer, a singer, an actor, a policeman, a teacher, whatever you want to do with life, there is only one way that you are going to be able to to achieve that by being the best at what you want to be and the best that you are doing, whether it's in sport or in any other line of work you do, is by being yourself. Only when you are being yourself and you are able to be yourself and you're happy within yourself that you will then excel and be the best at what you, be, what you, want, at what you want to be. And um, my message to anybody out there is, look, it's okay to be gay. Um, there is nothing wrong in being who you are. Um, I know it's difficult, and a lot of them are probably fighting against it like I was, probably becoming somebody that they probably don't want to become. 
but with time they will realize that listen this this is who you are and there is nothing wrong with it be proud of of the person you are and don't be afraid and and don't be afraid as well to to talk about it because that's the most important thing mm. i may not have gone to that very dark place if i would have had the courage to to open up and talk about it talking about the problems you have whatever they are is not a sign of weakness it's a sign of great great strength and and it's only by talking that you will then get through those difficult times Nigel you've refereed a world cup final you've been awarded the mbe at buckingham palace what is your proudest achievement my proudest achievement i think is is having the courage to to be me to be who i am i think um because it took years and years for me to to realize that and to be that and because if i hadn't had the courage to be myself and be proud of who i am um i wouldn't have been able to fulfill any of those i wouldn't have refereed the world cup final if i wasn't me if i wasn't happy within myself allowed to be myself because only then as i said earlier can you excel and be the best at what you be so everything i've achieved in life i wouldn't have been able to do that if i hadn't been able to be myself so i think you know proud that i that i am the person i am i guess um and then everything else then is is a moment of proudness in in your life of course it is um i suppose really in in summing it all up when my mum and dad told me that it doesn't matter who i am that they would love me the same that they would love me no matter what then i suppose that was the proudest moment i think because nothing else would have able to happen if if that hadn't happened Nigel Owens it's been a privilege to host you on the sporting couch thank you it's been my pleasure You've been listening to On the Sporting Couch, a programme that attempted to lift the lid on mental health issues in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, sports broadcaster, psychotherapist and counsellor, and my guest in the studio has been international rugby referee Nigel Owens. I hope the programme will have encouraged anyone who has, or knows anyone who has mental health issues, to come forward and get help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website, talksport.com forward slash sporting couch i'm gary bloom and please remember there's no such thing as good health without good mental health goodbye here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.